Hello, everyone. Welcome and mahalo for coming into this session with us today. Of course, um, our amazing guest for this special Labor Day session is Loren Walker, and I'm going to be introducing her to you in just one moment. But again, wanted to thank everybody for being willing to participate today in this very special interview and interactive session, questions and answers dialogue today um, on this Labor Day weekend. And we hope that this closes out a very relaxing and peaceful weekend for all of you. I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and I'm the founder and director of Restorative Justice on the Rise which is a podcast and a resource platform that has grown significantly over now almost nine years in time, actually eight and a half to be more exact, to serve an international, um, regional, and local movement in restorative justice to support you as a practitioner, uh, as someone possibly stepping into the field to connect with others who are doing work um, at whatever range of work that they're doing in the field. And we also host people who are um, doing related field work in peace building and beyond. It's a real pleasure and always an honor to be here with you and to set the tone for this space. Just um, we view it as a people's platform. These interviews and dialogues that go on to our podcast are spaces for um, people to take part to voice their thoughts, comments, ask questions. So today, if, if you're just um, new to our interviews or our sessions, um, this space is fairly easy. You All you need to do in order to ask a question is to press star two on the telephone keypad. Um, or if you're coming in through the web call or webcast, you can submit a question via the Q&A tab. Um, the, the chat board is also open today. So welcome. I see people are already using the chat board. That's great. So there's multiple avenues in which you can start to participate in the conversation today with Lorraine. Um, we also just would like to invite everyone to please um, review us on iTunes podcasting, on Apple podcasting. Let us know how we're doing. Um, there's a, a very significant archive of audios there for you to download and to listen into on whatever device of choice you might prefer. And I know a lot of people like to, to also tune into the podcast while they're driving. Um, there's over 170 hours, I think, at this point, featuring um, leadership in the field, as I was mentioning. And when we say leadership, we talk about people who maybe are well-known by name, but also people who might not be so well-known by name, who are all doing equally, equally important work. More about Restorative Justice on the Rise can be found at restorativejusticeontherise.org. We also, up top here, would like to just point out that Lorraine Walker, who I'm about to introduce, is an esteemed faculty for our Connection Series. Her first session is tomorrow, and I know during registration, uh, many of you mentioned that you'd like to hear more about that. So for those of you that did give us permission to reach out to you about it, we're going to tell you more about Lorenz Mentoring, which will be monthly through December, as will also Kate Pranis's, Dominic Barter's, and many others. And we have 
um, a beautiful faculty that's offering their time to sit and work directly with people, even if you're not working in the field yet and you're very interested in it and what, what it entails and to be with people who are, are working it, please, um, please join us. Um, so without further ado, though, I, I'm super excited to be in conversation with you all with Loren Walker, and I'd like to just share with you a bit about Loren. I'm sure many of you are already aware of her. But Loren is, of course, JDMPH, and she's a Hawaii-based health educator and restorative lawyer who develops, implements, studies, and writes about public health, restorative justice, and solution-focused approaches for peace building and resiliency. She collaborates with courts, prisons, law enforcement, schools, NGOs, and individuals. She has trained thousands on restorative and solution-focused group peacemaking practices and how to use public health for violence prevention. She directs Hawaii Friends of Restorative Justice, is a University of Hawaii adjunct associate professor in public health and law, author of several books and over 50 articles, senior Fulbright specialist for conflict management training, principal designer and researcher of pilot projects replicated in other states and countries. She has visited and studied prisons throughout the world. And for details on her challenging childhood and youth, please see her website, which is lorenwalker.com backslash biography. You'll find the biography tab if you surf over to her website, which is an extraordinary compilation of her work and her athletic accomplishments as well. Um, after Loren earned her Juris Doctorate degree from Northeastern University School of Law, she also clerked for Hawaii, Hawaii State Court judges from 1984 to 1994. She served as a Deputy Attorney General defending civil appellate and trial cases and prosecuting a few criminal cases. From 1994 to 2014, she represented indigent indigent youth and adults for crimes and child endangerment and was a guardian ad litem for children in child protection cases and for adults in civil commitment cases. She earned a master's degree in public health from the University of Hawaii, NPR and the Oprah Winfrey Network, CNN and Sage Publishing Company have all interviewed her and of course um, we know that Lorenz program, Hawaii Friends for Restorative Justice, as well as Loren herself as a facilitator for a VOD process, were featured in the recent extraordinary series from CNN um, hosted by Van Jones called The Redemption Project. So I just want to thank you, Loren, so much for being here with us today. Um, that's an extraordinary biographical sketch. And it's really an honor to just acknowledge, like, the depth and breadth of your work in so many applicable pockets at such length um, and commitment. So let's dive in. Um, welcome, Loren. And uh, first out, I uh, just want to say, tell us a bit about your story. What brought you in to your passion around justice and perhaps restorative justice. Thank you for being here. 
Uh, aloha. Thank you for inviting me, Molly, and for everyone for joining us. Um, my passion for justice. Uh, I've always been very, um, you know, interested in in um, helping people doing what was right. I remember a kid, his dad slapping him in the head when I was young, you know, like 10 or something. And I remember telling the father, you know, you should don't hit your kid. You know, it just, I just have um, always been kind of outspoken about, uh, about people being hurt and wanting to protect them. I first learned about restorative justice in 19, when I started, when I started getting my master's degree, when I started studying for my master's degree in 1994, I, um, Public health is really – public health – actually, I always tell people restorative justice is a public health approach to conflict and um, wrongdoing. It's, it meets the, it meets the uh, criterion for what health education, what the World Health Organization, the WHO, has described as being um, public health learning mechanisms are they fit with with restorative justice how restorative justice practices are carried out and with much of the philosophy of restorative justice and so that was in 1994 and I um, I heard about it because at that time I I just stopped being a regular trial lawyer for the state of Hawaii a deputy attorney general and I was taking um, cases for indigent youth and um, adults who were charged with crimes and and kids who were in child protective services and family court in Honolulu and the judge the judge I was so lucky that I who was the head judge there was Michael Town <clears throat> Mike Town and he, he was a he was a circuit court trial judge in charge of the family court and he and I was telling him I was talking to him because I was really interested in public health and group process which is what public health a lot of public health learning opportunities are centered around group process. How do people behave in groups? Humans are social creatures. We are group oriented. We learn from other other people and 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 so group process is really vital in public health. And um so Mike Town told me, oh you should learn about restorative justice. So I, I did. I um, learned, started learning about it. Actually, it was Ted Wachtell who uh, he started the IIRP. Ted Wachtell was um, he and Gail Burford, and I quickly also met John Braithwaite. Um, those guys all were, and then Kay Pranis shortly after that were uh, helped me learn a lot about restorative justice in the when I first started learning about it. And um, the reason I got into public health was I was um, I went to law school really because I really did want to help people. I really did want to make the world a better place. And I thought, oh, a law, you know, doing law, that will help do that. And after 10 years, I realized it really wasn't doing that. What I was doing was just um, trial, you know, it was trials. I mean, they had some good, you know, there was good, some good cases that I did, but some of them were just – kind of silly and it was all just really a lot of bureaucracy if any of you've ever practiced law it's a lot of homework a lot of technical work um, the merits of cases are rarely addressed it really um, in law in trial and law cases really are decided 
usually on procedure, which is really it just that just means bureaucracy, you know, like did you follow the steps and oh if you didn't follow the steps you have to go back and or you don't have a case. So so um restorative justice really appealed to me because it was it was really it it gets to the core of what people are upset about how people have been harmed and um what they can possibly do about it. Mm. Such a breadth of experience, and I, I wondered if, if, for just a quick moment here, in the intention of getting um, interaction going with everyone, um, just a reminder, pressing start to on your telephone keypad throughout our session today, which will last for um, an hour total, um, so for another 45 minutes, we really welcome your input, your comments and questions, start to to ask it live. If you are unable to use a keypad um, via the webcast, then um, certainly use the Q&A tab or the chat, and then we can invite you to come into the room if you'd like to speak your question or comment. And with that said, um, how many of you are currently working within a community restorative justice program? Just out of curiosity, raise your hand if you would be willing to just let us know how many of you um, star two, just to kind of take a, a temperature of the room here today. How many of you are currently working within or associated with a community-based restorative justice program? And just so you know, while we're waiting for the survey to come in, we have wonderful folks here from Canada, Europe, the United States, and um, just welcoming all of you today to this session with Loren Walker. Um, looks like we have about maybe, I would say, 10 to 15% of you. We have a, quite a significant group here today. So um, thanks for, for taking that brief survey. Lorraine, um, let's go back for a moment, if we could, to one of the, the areas that I feel is so important in your perspective regarding restorative justice. And then we're going to talk a bit about Hawaii Friends and all the extraordinary programs that you offer, as well as the reentry guide. Um, so if you don't mind, can we dive into this aspect of, um, of how you see voices and needs um, approached for all stakeholders in a restorative justice process? Can we start there? Sure, sure. Um, well, uh, I think I think everyone knows that there's kind of the quintessential restorative practice that includes the person who was harmed, the person who did the harm, their their uh, close supporters, and um, and and then the community. You know, their supporters, any uh, anyone else who was affected by what happened. And um, so that is uh, what Paul McCold has said is a full restorative process. What I say is a, the quintessential restorative practice, like a circle or some kind of a conference where all of these people are together. A lot of times that is not possible. The, in the United States, 70% of all crime goes without anyone ever being charged with the crime. There's no arrest. The FBI calls it cleared. There's 70% of cases are not cleared in the United States. Um, 
people in who have done who have hurt people, people who are in prison, who um, have hurt others, and people who aren't in prison but who have hurt others. They don't know many times. Those people don't know who they hurt. They don't know whose house it was they burglarized. They don't know whose car they stole. They don't know who they knocked down and stole their purse or whatever. Um, so sometimes in those kinds of cases, the cases where the people who are hurt and don't know who hurt them, and then the people who hurt people and they don't know who it is they hurt, those cases, we can't bring those people together. We cannot have the quintessential restorative practice. So there can be other ways of addressing the harm that those people have uh, suffered. And um, I use, I rely on um, the work of, of Howard Zare and how Howard defines a restorative practice, which, and Howard's definition is actually, uh, his is based on Tony Marshall's definition from the UK. It's, it's, it's a little bit different though. And it's basically um, the, that um, restorative justice, there's three R's to restorative justice, respect, responsibility, and relationship. Those are the three main guiding values of restorative justice. And then that a restorative practice itself, what is it? And it is some, something that, um, that I actually put on the back of my business card, which I'm just looking for right now, <laughs> my office. And, um, and I, I did, I sent it to, to Howard actually. He really liked it. It's a nice little thing. If anybody wants to see it, let me know and I'll send you a, a copy of it. It's um, really simple. But it's just that um, a restorative practice is something that in, involves stakeholders to a specific incident to the extent possible, you know, to the extent possible. Because, like I said, sometimes you don't know who it is that you hurt or you don't know who hurt you. So um, it's Howard's principles that I have for a restorative practice on the back of my card are the first one is who has been hurt. The second one is what are their needs. The third one is whose obligations are these. Fourth one is who has a stake in the situation. And five, what is the appropriate process to involve stakeholders in the effort to put things right? So um, considering those things, you can create processes. You can create some kind of a process where people, to the extent as, poss as much as possible, who've been affected by something can have some kind of a process where they look at how they have been affected by something that uh, harmed them or someone they loved or where they harmed someone and, and what can be done to try to make things right. What can be done to help people heal to the extent possible. So, um, and I think that um, I know in some there are some prosecutors in the United States, and uh, uh, I know of one one victims organization that believes that restorative practices can only be initiated by the person who is harmed. Which, well, that to me does not make sense. And um, the just my little quick survey of people I've talked to, John Braithwaite and Howard Zare. Um, I don't think that they agree, or I know that they don't, that it has to, you always have to have only victim-initiated restorative practices. That's just, um, 
I think that is much broader, that people who have hurt other people can initiate a restorative practice. And that happens all the time in prison programs where the people who are imprisoned don't know who they hurt, yet they're remorseful, they're sorry, they want to know what they can do to try to make things right. They can't go find that one particular person maybe that they hurt and, um, you know, have a face-to-face conversation with them. Maybe they don't know the person or maybe that person doesn't want to meet with them. And maybe the person in prison has no opportunity to even get in touch with that person. A lot of times in crimes, too, there are protective orders and um, people who are convicted of serious crimes are ordered to stay away from the victim. And so they can never contact that person, but they could still in their own whatever capacity that they have, they could still try to think of some way and take some kind of action to, to try to make things right. And this might not have anything to do with that person. It might just be, and, and then a lot of the work that we have done is a lot of these uh, people, these people who have hurt others who don't know who they are, they have said things like, they're just going to li- live a clean and sober life. They're going to be uh, law-abiding citizens. They're going to help people in their neighborhood. They're going to take care of their family. They're going to do things like that. And they believe that that is a way that they can help repair harm. On the other hand, people, one of the very first projects that we ever did in 2002, we did a project for people who were harmed by crime who didn't know who did it. In one case, it was a homicide. A woman's son was sadly killed, and um, she didn't know who did it. And we were able to meet with her in her home and explore uh, the depth of her pain and her suffering. She was able to, she cried for hours, and um, she was able to talk about what could, she can't bring her son back, but what could she possibly do? What in the world could she do to try and make some kind of meaning out of this or find something that she could do? And um, it was really helpful to her, and it was helpful to the other people that were part of this pilot project that we did. It was only about um, maybe like 20 people. I can't remember how many people. We published a paper on it, though. And and it was helpful to the people who had been hurt, who didn't know who hurt them. I myself was, uh, I was the victim of a very serious assault, a, a, a sexual assault that turned, quickly turned into an attempted murder. And, um, the person was never apprehended. It was really serious. I had to go to the high, I had to have a surgery. Um, the person was never apprehended or anything, but I was able to find some kind of meaning out of it. You know, I mean, I guess that too is one thing that really, uh, motivated me. Well, that motivated me to go to law school was being almost murdered wow. and attacked like that. But um but it but I knew, you know, when I was doing this work and restorative justice, I knew right away, like when I did that pilot project in two thousand and two, I knew from being a victim of a crime where there was the 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 um the uh, perpetrator was unknown, I knew that that you could still apply these restorative questions. You know, these restorative questions like how were you affected? How did it affect other people? You know, what can you do to make things right? What could you do to heal? What can I do to help heal? And um, I personally 
um, just, I wasn't willing to just be a victim. You know, I wasn't going to let the guy who almost tried to kill me, I wasn't going to let that person ruin my life. You know, I was only 24 years old. There was no way I was going to say, okay, now my life is ruined. No, I'm going to find a way that it could strengthen me and give me a better life. And it did. It did strengthen me. And it did give me a better life because that's why I went to law. And I didn't even, actually, when that happened, I didn't even have a high school diploma. I'm a high school dropout. I only finished the ninth grade of high school. I, um, and so that motivated me. Actually, I had gone to see a therapist because I had like PTSD and the therapist, um, after a couple, like a month or so, he started telling me I had to go to college. I was like, no way. I'm not going to go to college. I can't go to college. I'm not college material and stuff like that. And, and he just kept hounding me every week to go to sign up at Kauai Community College. And he insisted I sign up full time because I said I would take a couple classes. He said, no, you have to take at least four classes and go full time. And so then finally, after he kept nagging me about it, I thought, well, okay, I'm just going to tell him, yeah, I'm going to sign up. I'll go sign up, and then I'll drop all the classes because it's going to be too hard because I was a single parent. I was working, and, and I was just going to drop out. Yeah, thanks. Sorry about that. Um, so, anyway, I just think that it is up to the individual person who has suffered any kind of a harm to decide what they uh, – you know, what they want to do, what they want to, how they want to respond to that. And I think that restorative justice gives them um, different opportunities that the criminal justice system doesn't. So, yeah, do you have questions? Yes, we have a live question, it looks like. Um, John, welcome. Um, John's coming in from Colorado, as actually am I. Um, so, John. If you still have your question, your mic is open, and thanks for hanging in there. Hi, Molly. Um, this actually is Melanie. Um, sorry, oh, hi, sorry Melanie. About how that showed, hi, how that showed up. And I currently am in Las Vegas. <laughs> my, my computer's still on Colorado time. Um, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Um, well, first of all, I want to say how much I appreciate the different ways in which restorative justice um, is used. Um, I was uh, an attender at a uh, Quaker meeting in Miami when I was there for a couple of years, and I found this little book in their library where it's uh, restorative justice principles uh, are used in schools, and I love that. And um, because I'm passionate about restorative justice, I uh, was very grateful to be able to meet um, a woman uh, who uses it in regard to domestic violence. Um, Donna Coker, she used to be the dean of the Miami Law School at the University of Miami. And uh, before he died, there had been a judge who had begun setting up something called a therapeutic uh, jurisprudence uh, law, law, law school or an adjunct to the, to the law school. So it's the domestic violence application, and it's uh, also with the court system. I uh, can't give you the whole context. 
passion for restorative justice comes from um, 18 years in and out of family court in Denver, uh, where the whole family court system totally uh, disrupted our family. I mean, it was it was ugly and it was intentional. Uh, but my vision is to have to use the restorative justice principles like uh, Judge Peterson did in Minnesota. I don't know if you know his story, that he, he used those principles to clear his docket of the kind of cases that uh, our family was ruined by. So the, the, the different applications of restorative justice to me are, uh, it's, it's, it's a gold mine. Um, I wonder if you know about, I don't know how to pronounce his name, uh, the man, uh, Azim, K-H-A-M-I-S-A. Yeah, you, yes. Did, um, did he, he, yes. Sorry. Can you talk about that, I'm, I'm that so project? I'm so sorry to interrupt. So sorry to interrupt. No, that's you. fine. That's uh, it. Melanie. That's it. Um, I, Thank you. Okay, I just wanted, I just wanted to invite everybody, um, there's more people that would like to ask questions, and I w wanted to invite you to come to a conclusion of what what kind of comment or question you might like to present? Well, I just did before um, you before you uh, jumped in to tell me. Have you closed the mic? Yeah. No. Okay, no, you're I would like. You still oh, Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thanks I think for your what Azim <laughs> has done is phenomenal, and you might want to share that with uh, Loren and the group. Thank you, and thank you for sharing you. your story and honestly from the heart. If uh, if we had more time today, it would be wonderful to hear more about your experiences. So, um, Melanie, thank you for your understanding. Lauren, did you want to respond? Uh, just um, yes, I have met with Azim, and um, he's come to Hawaii a couple times, and I've read his book about his son, and um, yeah, he does very powerful work. I was just going to say that, and um, uh, didn't, and the Coker's work, um, Donna Coker's work, is really good too, in um, domestic violence. And uh, right now too, there's a really new good book that everyone should read. It's called No Visible Bruises by Rachel Snyder. I mean Rachel Louise Snyder. It's a trade book, and it's a, a her 10 year study on domestic violence. She's got a whole chapter in there about Sonny Schwartz's work in domestic in uh, restorative justice at the San Francisco jail. It's a really powerful, great book. And uh, yeah, we're on a big mission right now about um, domestic violence because 50 women a month are shot to death in the United States alone. Just shot to death in the world. There's 50,000 women are murdered every year by domestic violence. So it's, this is a huge problem. And, um, you know, it starts with objectifying women. It starts with people, I'm sorry to say, politicians who say stuff like, oh, she's not my type or these kinds of things. We have to really be vigilant, I think, about our language and try to change this paradigm of uh uh, it's misogyny, misogyny in the United States. We have to change the culture mm -hmm. and um, stop it. But, uh, mm. but yeah, so do you have more questions? Well, one of the things I want to acknowledge, and I, I, I want to ask an important question 
um, to you that I want to co- make sure mm-hmm. we cover today. I also want to remind uh, people to please um, press star 2 if you'd like to get involved or submit a question, comment on the Q&A tab or the in the chat room as well. Um, I want to acknowledge what I heard Melanie say, um, and I hope I'm acknowledging it, um, hearing it correctly, but I think she was pointing to the reciprocal um, re- recurring harm that, that can and does occur to parties impacted um, in our criminal justice system. And, and it also can occur when we're attempting to offer restorative practices and justice. Um, and, Loren, I want to talk bluntly and honestly with a few minutes of time here about mm-hmm. um, the pushback that um, also can lead to us improving how we do restorative justice um, and some of the common areas that, that you see um, there being imbalance. Um, does that make sense? Is, uh, do, do you want me to, to kind of flesh that out a little bit more before we dive in? Um, I, no, go ahead. I I'm think thinking, you can go ahead and dive in. Thinking well, I'm what? thinking in particular about like overarching focus on any one stakeholder in particular. Um, right. Yeah. And yeah. how that. Yeah. So th- I'd like to, to just hear your thoughts on that. Um, and also the, the value as a victim of a very severe and violent crime yourself of mm-hmm. taking care of victims needs while not like overly oh. focusing on one person or the other. Right. Well, <laughs> I think it's, um, I think, I think, I think that restorative justice, the foremost concern is always the victim. You know, when you see someone get knocked down, we run to that person and try to help them, right? That's what we should do. We should be caring about the person who's hurt, care about that person. What do they need? That should be our first, that's our foremost concern right then. But, after we have cared for that person, we can look around then and see, oh, who else is involved? You know what I mean? Why did this guy knock this person down? You know, what's going on here? The way our criminal justice system and um, the last Melanie was talking about her family being harmed by the family court is that it can, it can, it, it is so interested in, in finding what it's about is trying to find who is responsible for this bad act and then how can we punish that person? That's really what it's about. That's what the criminal justice system is about. It's about identifying offenders and then punishing them. And then, you know, sometimes people do say, oh, we want to rehabilitate them. You know, it's called the Department of Corrections. But, uh, frankly, I don't see a lot of correcting going on, um, a lot of punishment. So, um so that's, those are the two kinds of systems. You know, restorative justice cares about victims. But just because we care about victims foremost, it doesn't mean that victims are the only ones who can initiate or benefit from a restorative practice, which sadly, uh, some people advocate and say that. They say restorative justice is only for victim benefit and only can be victim initiated, which is just frankly not true, you know, and, and it shouldn't be. That's not, that's unrestorative. You know, restorative justice should be about healing and helping to create peace. And we don't do that when we uh, – it, it basically, what you're doing is, like, segregating groups and saying, oh, this group comes first. You know, I mean, first, of course, we do care about the victim first, right, when they're hurt and, and helping them with their needs. But um, 
that doesn't mean that the other people can't also want to heal and can't want to, you know, find peace. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah, that's beautifully put. Um, and in my roundabout way of, uh, you know, of feeding that question, you really demonstrated um, the the equanimity, I think, that um, I wanted to talk about, that, you know, just because we're doing one thing for one doesn't mean we're denying the other, um, if I'm hearing you correctly. And um, that victims' needs are very crucial. Um, but so are so are um, offenders, as we call them, and and community, as well as family members. Um, so, Loren, um, I'd like to point people's attention to the Hawaii Friends website. It has an incredible amount of resources, and that's HawaiiFriends.org. Um, and want to go into a little bit about your programs and hear what you're doing because you're doing a lot of different pieces within communities and different different pockets, um, mm-hmm. as well as you have a reentry legal resource guide. So if we could if we could mm-hmm. hear from you a bit about your current um, activities, uh, maybe talk a little bit about successes um, and mm-hmm. challenges. Sure. Um, well, we do a whole range of um, programs and practices. We we do a lot of international training and mentoring, helping people in other countries establish and provide restorative practices. Um, one practice that we developed here is called a restorative re-entry planning process. And we published a book on it, Transition and Reentry Planning. It's a little book um, guideline that tells you how to do it. It's real specific. And um, it was developed with uh, my late teacher, Insu Kim Berg, who is a, a renowned master uh, therapist and a founder of the solution-focused brief therapy method, which is quite similar to motivational interviewing. It's quite like it, except it does not follow the stages of change. And so in solution-focused practice, we assume every individual is the best expert of their life, and if they say they're ready to make a change, we just, you know, talk to them about that. We don't assess them like uh, is done in motivational interviewing. Anyway, we so we do international work. We do uh, national national stuff with people in other states, NGOs, uh, nonprofits, governments. Um, we do locally. We do um, work in uh, the Hawaii State Women's Prison. And um, we provide those reentry circles. We do a, we have a pilot project. One of the, the first reentry planning pilot project for the federal courts is in here in Honolulu. We've done that since 2015. Uh, we've we've um, worked with over 100 people in that program. We're working on a paper on it right now. Um, we do. Uh, an annual, this is going to be our 11th year to do an annual probation completion celebration. It's held in our Supreme Court. It's a, it's a restorative and therapeutic jurisprudence 
practice that brings people who have worked hard to get off parole and the people who have helped them, including people on the parole board, judges, police, uh, counselors, social workers, all the families of the people who were on parole. And we have a, just a beautiful ceremony, a circle ceremony in our Supreme Court with about 70, you know, up to 65, 75 people in a big circle. Um, we do work in schools, helping schools to apply restorative justice, training them on um, how to do a whole school approach for a school, not just, you know, restorative discipline. We don't just teach people how to do restorative discipline. We try to show people how to do a whole school approach where restorative values like uh, what Howard believes the three R's, respect, responsibility, and relationship are um, permeated in the school environment. Um, we do... As well as upstream we have practices, that, right? Yeah. I mean, when... Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we do practices. Yes. Yes, we do. We're called upon to, to um, work with individuals in different kinds of cases, and um, and we do that. But and then we also do, like you said, that reentry. We have a reentry legal guide that we put online. That if, if if anybody is familiar, if anybody's working with people in prisons, there's a fabulous organization in California called Roots and Rebound, and they so generously offered and helped us for two years put together our own reentry guide. And it's California's is huge. California is a huge state. I mean, it's got billions of people. Hawaii's just got 1.5 million. So ours is much smaller. But, um, but we've tried to do that. So we have that online free guide. But we also do provide also a, um, free family law clinic for women who are in prison. We have a seasoned family court lawyer who goes there twice a month. For nine months out of the year and gives them assistance in filing pro se uh, things in family court. So like how to, you know, you can get a divorce and it's really empowering, you know, for imprisoned people to, to, especially women to be able to get a divorce, you know, to, to take care of the custody of their children. These kinds of things are very important. So, yeah, so that's a little bit about our work. That, we do a lot. Wow. Yeah, that's an incredible volume of services for many different communities. Um, just honoring mm -hmm. and acknowledging that. And I bet I'm not the only one wondering how you pull that off. So I'm guessing you have a strong volunteer um, community um, and or staff community that you've built over these years. And I, I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about how how many people are involved and how, how that works to be so consistent in all of these areas? Well, um, yeah, we have a really strong, we have a very strong um, community base here, people who are interested in um, peacemaking and, and restorative justice. It, um, and we also have good relationships with our judiciary. We're um, close to the judiciary um, and try to work with them closely. And um, the challenges, though, are really are in sustainability, you know, not having funding, not having a, a um, constant stream of funds is, is really difficult. 
I mean, really, it's a lot of us and the, the people who work in the organization, we just a lot, we're just lucky that a lot of us are really hyperactive people that have a lot of energy and do a lot of stuff. And so, you know, we're able to pull it off and do a lot of things. And, um, yeah, we've been really, really fortunate. We didn't have those people. I mean, it's really been a huge team effort. And even, na- you know, internationally, too, people, um, we just did a, pro- I just did a, a, a grant proposal with two partners, Ram Tawarli in um, Nepal and uh, Theo Gravaldius in um, London, and also Penny Griffith in D.C. We just put together a little a little uh, international um, mm. grant proposal. It's very um, – we'll not get it, but, but it was – you know, it's, it really is in the partnerships, this work. Yes, you know, it is. Who you work with and um, – what you're interested in. So, Theo Gabrielides is a a, Mm -hmm. a past um, guest Mm -hmm. of this podcast series, and um, I believe his organization Mm -hmm. um, that he Mm -hmm. shares with many people is called RJ for All. Is that correct? Just for people's information in case they want to check it out. Mm -hmm. And then then Ron Tuwadi. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Ron. I just want to – That's right. Go ahead. Ron. Ram Tiwari from the Nepal um, Restorative Justice, I can't remember the exact name. Forum. Um, he's, Forum. he's done significant work over just a few short mm-hmm. years to build uh, yeah. practices within the legal system there, I believe. And then yeah. um, there was one other. But, that, but just it goes without saying, what you're saying is partnership is essential and, and yeah. our community partnerships are essential. And, Loren, mm-hmm. you're so good at relating to people, and you have so much acumen and hands-on experience um, due to your story, due to your commitment. Um, what's key in – what's what's the cohesive factor, for, especially for volunteers, and how do you sustain interest in your direct communities? Um, I know probably the, the beautiful um, Huna and Hawaiian perspective of life probably helps because it's kind of a natural ease into restorative justice, but mm-hmm. is already a part of, of the paradigm. But can you just speak, right. you know, for those of us who are trying to build our own programs in our own community, some of us are probably trying to do that. Like how do you, how do you mm-hmm. start um, with a good volunteer base? Any tips? Well, one thing, I, what we want, lo- we want local community-based volunteers. We don't just want retired uh, rich people, you know, retired state workers or people who are, you know, have money. So we give people stipends. I am like, I know some people in restorative justice feel strongly. You should always use someone who is a complete, you know, pure volunteer, not getting any money. But we give people stipends because we recognize people can't afford to do this work you know, if some of these cases take hours and hours and hours. And and to get the training, too, to be able to have the competence to do them takes many hours. And, you know, sure, I could maybe get people who are wealthy, you know, or have – they've got money and they're able to support themselves. But I want people who are more community-based, the people who are more a reflection of the people like me, you know what I mean? Although, I mean, I don't really need that much money because I'm pretty older now and stuff. I'm pretty good. But um, so I think it's important 
to give people stipends and to give them, give them a little bit of money, pay for their gas at least, you know, pay for their lunch, do these kinds of things. I think that's really important. If you want to, if you want a volunteer base that's a true reflection of your community, I think you have to do that. I don't think that, um, because otherwise I think that the people you get are people who had, you know, because the people who can afford to do it, they had money, you know, and, um, I mean, that's great. Those people are great. I'm not discounting them. I love them too. But, um, you know, I want people who are, who, uh, you know, who, who need, they need some, um, they need a stipend. So I make sure we do that. Mm -hmm. You know, we get funding to pay for stipends. I mean, people do, we have a fabulous board of directors, amazing board of directors. They don't get any stipends. Those people do a lot of stuff. But, but, um, you know, the people who are helping me with facilitation, the people who are coming to the prison, I, I try to give these people stipends, you know, as much as possible. People who are running a program right now, we have a fabulous woman doing our school program. Um, you know, I give her stuff. You know, I want them to keep, I want them to come back, you know, and um, right. I think they do. They want to come back. They love the work, but they also need a little bit of, you know, um, material support. You know, I don't know. I don't think there's anything wrong in that. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong for not at all. I think that's a that's a way you get the real community. Is so mm-hmm. you know so yeah. So, so the funding part is that's always the challenge is the funding. How do you get the funding? And mm-hmm. um, you know that's the difficult part is the funding. Indeed, and it's it, it, it's I, I love your approach though. I think it's really important to give. Give people the acknowledgement um, as far as paying for their gas and providing some kind mm-hmm. of stipend as best you can. And of course, again, yeah. NPOs um, that are growing are are really struggling with funding. But mm-hmm. the good news is that there's funding out there more and more um, significant. Yeah. And um, Lorraine, I want to pause because there's some more questions coming in, um, okay. and I want to just make sure that we leave time. Um, for anyone else, uh, I didn't mean to cut Melanie off for sure. Um, I just wanted to, a lot of times people get really active in ac- asking live questions, and we really value everybody um, being a part of this conversation. So um, it's just a limited hour, as you know. We have five minutes left. Um, so, Angela, thank you for your question. Um, it's an important one, especially given the, the temperature of the room today, which appears that many people may just be stepping into restorative justice and restorative practices as a field. Um, she asks, in order to learn restorative justice practices, does an individual have to have a degree in this area? Um, she says she's entering this process somewhat late in life. Thank you, Angela. Thanks for your participation. Uh, no, I don't think you have to have a degree, but I think you have to have experience. You have to go embed yourself with somebody who knows what they're doing and follow them and model them and learn. You know, I think people definitely have to have practice and experience to do restorative practices, modern restorative justice, you know, these practices. Yeah, but I don't think you have to have a degree. I mean, it's helpful. I would love to take, I'd love to have a Howard degree from Howard School, you know, from Carl Dilfer and those guys out there at the, um, and IARP or whatever, you know. I mean, I think there's a lot of programs out there, but, uh, I think you could embed yourself with someone and just learn it, which is basically what I did. 
What do you think, Lorraine, on, on that note, are the essential elements of um, someone who's skilled in facilitation? And when I say facilitation, I'm referring both to facilitating a post-conflict restorative justice process as well as to being a facilitator for community building circles. What are key elements in your perspective? Oh, well, I think the first thing is you have to be a really good listener. You have to really listen. You have to really practice listening. Um, you have to really have a lot of self-awareness and not, and not get suckered in by your own agenda and what you want, you know, which I think we all get, have that, you know, we're all, it's all about our, our um, story, you know, what we think is best for other people. And I think we have to really, that's the beauty of restorative justice is that, that it gives agency to the people. It gives agency to the stakeholders. They have autonomy. And that's where the healing and the growth comes from. And so as facilitators, we have to be careful. Do not be paternal. That's one thing that um, drives me nuts about some restorative uh, facilitators. Get really paternal about stuff, about that, the, you know, I don't know, I just, I think it's, you have to be really careful. The process, you're there just to guide this process. You're not there to do substantive, um, you know, inject your own substance stuff. So you have to be really um, a good listener. You have to be about other people. You, uh, you have to be curious, you know. Um, that's why we also follow the solution-focused approach because it is very optimistic. It's very curious. It's very beginner's mind, you know, um, open like that. So I think you need to be open and a good listener. Those are those are really important. Mm. And I'm also hearing the importance of community ownership um, instead mm-hmm. of one person driving the circle per se. Is mm-hmm. that about it? Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. yeah. You don't want to have an autocratic process. It's not autocratic. It's democratic. You want to have it a group process where it's a democratic process, not autocratic. And, Lorraine, I know that um, we only have a few minutes um, before we close mm-hmm. today, and I wanted to just um, drop back in to talk a little bit about the mentorship series that we're offering um, with you. Uh, and others, including some of the people that you've mentioned throughout our conversation today. Um, Restorative Justice on the Rise has been offering kind of a beta test of sorts this year, all throughout 2019. We took a short summer break um, to just allow people to dive in with leadership in the restorative justice field and with um, an international community of participants and practitioners. And some of you have been asking, well, is this a series for beginners? And my answer would be absolutely. Uh, it's, it's incredibly important for people to have support in this work. This is very hard work. <laughs> it's very courageous work, <laughs> as you know, Lorraine. Um, so I'm just curious to know, Lorraine, um, in these spaces, like, what what are you looking forward to to hearing from people who are participating um, that choose to participate in the connection series? What what are the areas that you might want to look at with people in an online space, no less? <laughs> well, it, it really depends on what the people want. I mean, my um, my interest is getting people engaged and learning. 
you know, people wanting to learn. And that's how I learn, too, is from other people learning. And so, uh, you know, it depends on what the people want. What do they want to learn? What 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 are they interested in? And um, having that opportunity, providing that opportunity to them is what what I hope to do. So it can be anything. It can be it can be a very beginner stage, you know, some very beginner thing or more advanced, whatever. You know, I don't have any because um, I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually an old Montessori teacher, and Maria Montessori, she said, uh, she said we're not even teachers. You know, she said you're not teachers; you're like a director. You direct a classroom. You create this environment for learning, and that's how I look at myself as a as a professor. And um, you know, whenever I'm engaged in any kind of a learning, a training thing, that I'm just there to create this atmosphere, this environment for learning to take place. So whatever the the individuals personal interest is whatever they want to learn then i want to help facilitate that i can't say exactly mm-hmm. what the subject is without knowing what the person mm-hmm. wants yeah that's i love that i really honor that and that's the same light in which um this whole year series um and we're so grateful that you're willing to be a part of it and actually starting tomorrow so um Lorraine's first session is tomorrow, which is, of course, Tuesday, September 3rd. Um, it will be held at 4 p.m. Pacific, and it will go for as long as needed, no more than um, 90 minutes to, you know, two hours is tops in these sessions. And they're really counterintuitive in the sense that a lot of us are expecting agendas. You know, we go to these trainings, we go to something, and we want to take away stuff. Well, um, Loren just pointed out exactly why we're doing this is to um, connect a community of practitioners worldwide without you having to pay for, you know, plane tickets and for um, a bunch of trainings so that wherever you're at in your process of, of wanting to be more involved in the field or to refine what you're already doing, you have support on that from people who are, are deeply seasoned and open with their wisdom. And so, Loren, thank you again for um, being willing to be on the faculty, um, including other people such as Kate Pranis, um, Joe Brummer, who's steeped in trauma-informed practices and, and also works in schools. Dr. Tayasha Bankhead um, from Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth is also continuing. Um, Dominic Barter from Restorative Circles. Lauren Abramson, who was the courageous um, decades-long founder of the Community Conferencing Center out of Baltimore and more people, and including um, the wisdom and um, recordings of the entire year uh, from from other faculty, in, uh, Chris Miner Schweigert um, and esteemed faculty from the IIRP, which was um, uh, a group that you mentioned a little bit ago, Lorraine. So um, I just want to pause for a moment and see if anybody else has questions, anything else before we have some closing comments and conclude our session today. And I'm checking um, the Q&A in the chat, and you're certainly warmly welcome to chime in at star two. And just while we're waiting for anybody else to um, participate today, a final note that we it's really important to us to uh, abide by permissions and, and to protect your privacy. So if if during registration you ask not to be contacted, um, you know, about 
our e-news or um, to get on our e-news or to um, hear more about this mentoring program, we certainly will respect that. And um, thank you again, everyone. So it, look, it looks, Lauren, like we are um, complete with questions for today, but I just want to take a moment um, for a couple closing thoughts centered around um, taking first restorative steps. For people who might be still with us, um, we're a few minutes over, so pardon. What is, what is an important piece to consider as we step in to possibly connecting with others to build our own program? Well, um, I think it depends on what your purpose is. You know, what is your program for? What do you, um, what do you want? You know, what is your goal? I think it's really important to define that. And then, um, like I said before, get knowledge and experience. And, uh, I always encourage people to read Howard Zare's book, Changing Lenses. I think his book is really good, um, sets a really nice framework for what restorative justice is, restorative practices, and the philosophy. Um, there's other, there's lots of other, uh, materials on the subject, but, um, being really clear, I think, about what your purpose is and what you want. What is your goals? What are you looking for? I think you have to be clear about that and then, um, you know, finding those partners and collaborate with people. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been a, a very fast hour today with you, Loren, and such an honor. Um, and thank you for sharing your story and giving us insight into the incredible work that you're offering in so many areas. And I want to remind people to please visit Hawaii Friends of Restorative Justice. And, of course, that's at hawaiifriends.org. There's a, a ton of resources there, including the Hawaii Friends Reentry Guide, books and publications, um, and then Loren Walker, all one word, dot com, LorenWalker.com, for Loren's biography, publications, testimonials, uh, resources, and more, um, including athletic, um, all the all the stuff that you do as an athlete and a passionate human being. And finally, I'd like to mention to everyone that there's a wonderful resource at Restorative Justice on the Rise of recordings um, from the Redemption Project uh, with Van Jones, which was a recent CNN series of eight episodes, and one of the episodes featured Lorraine and her presence and facilitation in a process, uh, a high-risk victim-offender dialogue process. So highly recommend if you haven't already checked out the Redemption Project series, you can go back to CNN and tap on those, uh, as well as the discussion series that Restorative Justice on the Rise was honored to host after each episode. Um, if Taria Walters is on with us tonight, just want to give a special shout out to Taria. She was a part of that um, particular episode as well, and really appreciate all the work she's doing up in Alaska. Um, anything else, Lorraine, before we close that I forgot to mention? Um, no, and um, I just really, um, I'm, I'm really also available if anybody ever wants to email me. Our email is on our website, and we're really open to always helping people and, 
and we're very grateful and thankful that everyone's interested in this work. And thank you, Molly, for this opportunity to talk about it and for all the work, good work you do. Thanks. Mahalo. Aloha. So aloha, everyone. Um, thank you for being patient with me and with the technology tonight. I'm always honored and humbled by the incredible turnouts that these uh, sessions are getting. It tells me that restorative justice is indeed on the rise. So thank you and hope to see some of you tomorrow at Lorraine's first mentoring session as part of the Connection Series. Thanks, everyone, and enjoy the rest of your weekend.